Well, who here knows who J.R.R. Tolkien is? J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien is great. So I'm told. So I'm told. See, I feel like there's sort of a, there's a lot of pressure among scholarly Christians to revere Tolkien and, and the Lord of the Rings. Like, you've got to love Tolkien. You know, you just, you just have to. And, and I really do like the Lord of the Rings movies. I've never read the books. I mean, I like to read history. I like to read biography. I do not like to read fantasy. I just don't. The movies, however, are a completely different thing. They're fabulous. I mean, the Lord of the Rings movies are great. So I do like Tolkien. And I do like the Lord of the Rings, although we got off to a bit of a rocky start. I remember many years ago sitting down to watch The Fellowship of the Ring with Julie and the boys. And the boys were still very little at this time. They had actually read the books. And it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool movie. Until all of a sudden, the credits were rolling. And the movie was over. And I was both confused and disappointed. What a terrible ending. What a crummy way to end a movie. I mean, it's this really long movie, and yet they seem to have run out of time to finish the story. Nothing was resolved. The mission was cut short. There was no final victory. There was no final defeat. No resolution. It did not make sense to me. Then... I found out from my learned children uh, that uh, it was indeed not the ending because The Lord of the Rings is a trilogy. There are actually three movies. And I had only viewed the first one, and it would be years before the others would even be made so that I could see them. Uh, They hadn't been made yet. Point being, I might have enjoyed the movie and understood it better if I had known that the story which began in this movie would one day have a proper ending. I also might have known the where the story was going, what it was pointing to, where it was heading, if I'd read the books like my, like my elementary school sons had. Now, I don't want your study of the book of Genesis to be like my watching of the Lord of the Rings. An overview of the book of Genesis helps you to know where the story is going and gives you a road map to aid your understanding along the way. Whenever you look at a map, the first thing that you look at is the legend, right? You set the map in front of you, you find the legend in one of the corners. A map's legend explains how to read the symbols on the map. And the legend for Genesis is the same as the legend that we use for all of the Old Testament, and it is found in Luke chapter 4. Turn to Luke chapter 24. I'm sorry, Luke 24. We're getting rid of some preliminary matters here, beginning with the Emmaus Road hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a, is a Greek word. It simply means interpretation. How are we going to read and interpret Genesis? We need a tool to help us with that, and that is our hermeneutic, our method of interpretation. We're going to read and interpret Genesis the way Jesus tells us to in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, after the crucifixion of Jesus, two of his disciples are walking down the road to a town called Emmaus when they encounter the resurrected Jesus Christ, but they don't know that it's Jesus. And they say to Jesus, we don't understand why Jesus was killed. We don't get this ending. We don't understand why Jesus was killed because we thought he was the Messiah. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus says that the entire Old Testament, including the Pentateuch, the first five books, and including Genesis, the very first book, are all about him. The Pentateuch is those first five books. They're written by Moses. They're about Jesus. So, is the first book. Where is this going to take us? Where are we going to find this movie ending? It's going to be ending at Jesus and his gospel. It's where it's going to be going. A friend of mine told me once that he heard Mark Dever say, he knows Mark Dever, I don't know Mark Dever, but he heard Mark Dever say that if the Bible, uh, if he was ever stuck on a deserted island, uh, he could only have two books of the Bible, he would choose Genesis and one of the Gospels, any of them, doesn't matter, but Genesis and a Gospel, beginning and the fulfillment of that beginning. You see, you have to have Genesis in order to get the rest of the Bible to make sense. Genesis is the beginning that points us to a sure and certain end, which is always Jesus Christ. So our first preliminary matter is to read Genesis according to Jesus' instructions, looking for Jesus and his gospel along the way. Now, we won't see Jesus in the same way that we see Jesus in the gospels, but we will see symbols and types and foreshadowings that point us to Christ and the message of redemption. We have already seen this in a profound way last week when we saw Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word of God who was with God in the beginning and who even was God. When we saw that, when we saw that of everything that was made by God, there was nothing made without Jesus. It pointed us to Jesus. And there's a lot more Jesus in Genesis where that came from. Let me me point out to you three basic sections of Genesis. I think this is helpful. Genesis is a unique type of history. Uh, It's about real people in real places at real times existing in real events. But it's not history just for the sake of history. It's not a mere record keeping. This history has a purpose to communicate the truths of God, to inform biblical faith, to educate us spiritually so that we would know God. That's the purpose of this history. Genesis is what Theologians call it a redemptive historical narrative. Think about that. There's a, there's a history of all creation, and within it, there is this redemptive theme through the whole thing. A redemptive historical narrative or story. It is the history that God makes in the world to redeem his people and restore his kingdom. That's what's happening in the whole Bible. And that's the way we view all of Scripture. God's work of redeeming from beginning to end helpful way to look at it. Now, if you were to take your Bible and turn to Genesis and then slowly just flip through the pages, flip through the pages of Genesis like that, you would find three basic sections, which I think are helpful to keep in mind. It's Genesis 50 chapters is kind of a big elephant, right? And so we want to we take small bites, but here's a, here's a way to kind of keep track of where you're at with these three main sections. The primeval events are roughly in chapters 1 to 11. The first 11 chapters. Primeval refers to the very, very earliest. It's not evil with an I, it's eval with an L. The very, very earliest of things. This begins with the creation account and includes Adam and Eve, the fall, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Section one, the primeval events. Section two, which is the big one in the middle, is the patriarchal events from chapters 12 to 36. Big section in the middle. Now, the patriarchs are Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. They're the forefathers of Israel. That's what patriarch means, the forefathers. It's the big section in the middle, and there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there that we're going to gloss over today. And then the last section, about the last 14 chapters, is the Joseph story. The Joseph story. Moses spends a lot of time on that. The Joseph story is really the end of the Jacob story, to be honest, because Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. Joseph, uh, uh, you know, there in, in Egypt. But he provides a, a mostly encouraging end to the book. Jacob's a delightful account. Uh, and there's a mostly encouraging end to the book of Genesis. Genesis is a long book, and I think it's, it's helpful to break it up into these three parts so that you kind of know where you're at in general. So these are some basic headings for that purpose, and perhaps that'll be useful uh, as a preliminary matter for you. Next, I want to turn to the context of Moses' writing, or I could say his original readers. His original readers. We don't often think of that when we turn to Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning. When you and I turn to page 1 in our Bibles and start reading, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's as if we really are at the beginning. I mean, it's written as basically an anonymous source. It's just, it's just history picks up. And it's, and it's wonderful to read it that way. But what about the very first readers of the book of Genesis? Because there was a Genesis to the book of Genesis. There was a time when it was not, and then there's a time when it was. Genesis is not a standalone book. Genesis is the first of five books called the Pentateuch. Penta, you can hear the word five, the number five in there. And Moses is the author of all five of those books. He must have written the Pentateuch after the exodus from Egypt and before his death. This is just making sense of things, right? We know what was going on in his life until they get out of Egypt and he's in the He's got a lot of time in the wilderness, right? And he dies there before crossing over into the promised land. So sometime between the exodus and the entrance of Israel into the promised land is when Moses must have written this book. So Genesis was written for God's people Israel. They're the audience. That's who he has in mind. And it's not just God's people Israel, but it's God's people Israel as they prepare to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Moses focuses is not on the past. We're thinking, oh, he's just providing some, some historical data here. Uh, he's just providing a history book for, for Hebrew school. No, that's not what he's doing. His focus, when Moses writes this and gives this to the children of Israel, is not to look on the past, but to look forward to the future. They're getting ready to cross into the promised land. Israel had already failed once to trust God to enter and take the promised land, remember? Which resulted in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until that faithless generation died, and now there's a new young generation that's preparing to enter and to fight under the leadership of Joshua to take the land that God has promised them. That's quite an endeavor. That's quite a mission. And they recognize their past failure as they're looking towards the future. So how does Genesis help to prepare them for that? It's a good question to ask. Genesis helps Israel to remember who they are who they are, and why they are to do what they are about to do. Why they're about to engage in this mission. And, and if you want to look at it this way, Moses kind of works backward. Looking at, looking at the tribe of Israel, ready to cross over into the promised land and fight to take what God has told them to fight to take because he's promised it to them he, he looks backwards, if you will, and he connects those Israelites 
to their forefathers. Remember your forefathers. And then he connects the promises, uh, those forefathers, to the promises that God made to them. So they're connected to the promises. And then, and then he, he connects those promises to the one who made those promises, the God of creation, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And now you've got bedrock to stand on. Do you see? He's looking back so that they can move forward. Genesis provides bedrock, foundational confidence to the people of God to live as God has commanded them to live, even though it involves a battle to come. Their promise-making God is a promise-keeping God who created the universe. Trust him. Your parents didn't, you will, and you can. And so just as Genesis connected them to their covenantal-keeping God as they read it and believed, think about what it did after that. What about other generations, subsequent generations who have read Genesis, like we're doing? Remember Israel as they, in later centuries, when they were in exile, in Babylon, having failed miserably, Time after time after time again. Spurning God's call for them to come back to him over and over and over again. And then God had promised that their captivity would end and that they would return and resettle the land. And they needed the same kind of bedrock to do that then. Fast forward to our time. Fast forward to... Christ Fellowship Church, reading Genesis today. Our faith is assaulted daily by a culture that has rejected the creation ordinances of God. And so we're going back to Genesis to remember that we're standing on bedrock when we stand on the truths of Christ and to stand with confidence in our God who created the whole cosmos. It began with him and it's going to end with him and it's his in the middle where we are. Bedrock. I think this is a good thing to remember as we study Genesis. And as we move into it, I want to look a little bit at the structure and the overview. And I ask you a silly question. What's a toldot? A toldot is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means generations. As I've been studying, I just, I'm reading this word over and over and over again. And so I just thought I'd throw it in there. Uh, it's the transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning generations. And it appears in the ESV as the phrase, the genesis, or the generations of. When you look at Genesis, you'll see this phrase from time to time, the generations of. And Moses, Moses uses the phrase, the generations of, ten times to identify a new section of the book. This is the structure. This is how Moses has structured Genesis. By these ten phrases that say, the generations of, the generations of, the generations of. So when you're, when you're reading through, through Genesis and you get to one of these, the generations of, I'm trying to think of an illustration, something that needs to keep spinning, a, a, a plate on a stick. You know, every time you get to one of these generations of, it's like Moses going, spin, get it going again. And you're, and you're reading about that generation, and then there's another spin, because we're going to propel the story forward. We're going to move the story forward. We're going to keep it going with these 10 new generations of. That's kind of what, what he's doing here. And so the first we have is, is the creation account. When we begin with Genesis, we read it last Sunday, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, uh, verse 3. Then we have 10 sections that each begin with the phrase, the generations of. 
So the first one is chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. But this, this word toldot, this generations, it means a little bit more than just a list of descendants. It's not just a list of names. Rather, it is, here's what became of these people. Here's what, here's what flows out of the names that I just gave to you. So, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, gives an account of creation, and then chapter 4 says, and here's what came out of that. Here's what happened next to all of that stuff, all that creation that I just told you about. These are the people and the events that followed. So let's quickly survey the book of Genesis based on this structure of ten generations. I think in your, in your sermon outline, I, I gave you ten hash marks there uh, to, to take a little bit of notes. Now, this is not detailed, so you don't have to be detailed in your notes. It's, it's broad brush strokes this morning as we move quickly through. Again, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so we have God's beautiful creation. It's very good. It's blessed by God. Remember that. It's blessed by God. And this is the generation that follows. God walks with Adam and Eve in his garden in Eden. But they rebel against God's authority and that results in death. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that even creation itself was horribly marred by Adam's disobedience. Do you remember that passage? And that it groans for its restoration. The result of the fall is devastating and there's no going back. There's no going back. And yet even in the midst of the fall, we see God's intention and his promises. We see God's intention when we recognize that Adam was a type of of Christ. Now bear with me and let me, let me flesh that out a bit. Adam was a type of Christ. Listen up. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, still Adam, and so death spread to all men, that's us, because all of us have sinned, that's us. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned through Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. A type of the one who was to come. How is Jesus or Adam a type of Christ? Well, see, Adam was a type of Christ because he was a representative. He represented us before there was an us. And he was a poor representative, wasn't he? Adam represented U of I, and he did a bad job. When he sinned, we all sinned and received the death sentence for our sin. But Christ also serves as a representative to all who believe in him by faith, doesn't he? Romans 5 goes on to say, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's a good representative. He's the representative that we have by faith. And this is why Jesus is often referred to as the second Adam. Where Adam got it wrong and creation fell, Jesus got it right and restores creation and redeems sinners. 
We see God's promise of a rescuer in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You just want to put that nugget in your head. Genesis 15, gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, gospel. In the midst of the curse, we find the gospel. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You, the serpent, whom I'm cursing, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. This is the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of God, that Christ will one day come and conquer the serpent. He will come day, one day come and vanquish God's enemies, our enemy. See, Christ is the offspring or the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent under his feet. This is what Paul has in mind in Colossians chapter 2 when he, when he said that through the cross of Christ, Christ disarmed and triumphed over the rulers and the authorities. And all of the rest of Genesis, Moses is tracing the line of that promise. The line of that seed until it comes to its perfect and full fulfillment. Each generation is looking for that one ultimate seed, who we know to be Jesus Christ, to rescue God's people from the curse and to restore God's kingdom. And even as we look back to see that by faith, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment and promise of God, and we know that that's bedrock. That's bedrock. The next section of Genesis begins in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. There's our marker. Here's the next section. Moses gives us a list of descendants there in chapter 5, tracking the promise of the seed of the woman in a world that's filled with sin. And then we get the account of Noah. Noah is the third section beginning in chapter, chapter 6, verse 9. But look at how we get to Noah in the verses just before that, in Genesis 5, verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, that sounds pretty promising. Those are pretty promising words about Noah. See how they are, the readers looking forward and hoping for the true seed of the woman who will bring relief from the curse. And Noah is a picture of that seed. He's a type of Christ. You know the story. Noah is saved through judgment of the flood and walks out of the ark into a new creation, a remade earth that has been cleansed from wickedness, except the wickedness that's still in Noah and his family. And we can read this in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, have, uh, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood." And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man he shall, uh, his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, 
and multiply in it. Doesn't that sound like God's command to Adam? Doesn't it sound like a restating of God's command to Adam? Noah is God's man who has been figuratively raised from the dead through the judgment of the flood in the ark, and he's given a, a kingdom to rule. Sounds very similar. It's another picture showing us that one day, God's man is going to be given charge over creation that has been purged from its wickedness. That's a hopeful thought. That's a hopeful thought. But Noah is not the fulfillment of that promise, is he? It won't take long to see that Noah's sin is still with him and that he's in need of a better seed yet to come just as well, who we know is Jesus Christ. Now chapter 10, verse 1, begins with the account of the sons of Noah, but it moves very quickly. Just It's gone like that. You know, it's kind of like you know, reading through Genesis, sometimes it's a little bit like, I don't know, what's that game, shoots and ladders? You know, every now and then you get to one of these generations and you just go real quick to the next one. And then you land on the next one and you're there for a while because there's some significance. It moves very quickly, as does the account of the generations of Shem, which begins in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. Now, the genealogies are important because they're, they're tracing back to the source of salvation. They're tracing back to the source of the seed, to the foundation of God the Father. That's what it's doing for those of us looking back on it. But at the same time, Moses is teaching us how to read Genesis. All of the generations are important, but Moses is spending his time on the most significant men, men to whom God has made promises, covenants of lasting significance to show us who God is, to reveal his plan of redemption unfolding in history. But we have these, we have these sections where we move past seven guys, seven guys, seven guys, and we have these where we camp out on one guy because there's something significant going on there in terms of God's covenant renewal. And so now we come to our first and great patriarch, who's the son of Terah. In Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. I'm going to read just a few verses into chapter 12, verse 3. Now these are the generations of Terah. Here's what flowed from Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives... The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, excuse me, Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. They stopped short of Canaan. So they're in Haran. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just ask, get your attention for a second. Are you with me? Are you still with me? I just want to make sure you're still with me, that you're, you're still awake, you're still focused. Uh, you, you need to take a minute and stand and shake it out. You know, whatever it takes, I want you to see this in the Word. As I know we're moving fast. I know there's not a ton of depth. 
but we're getting broad strokes of what, how things are moving, and you need to see this as we move into Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, God has already given Abraham a great name. He was Abram, and now he's already Abraham. Promise already kept, which means the father of a multitude. And God promises to give Abraham and Sarah a son of their own. Even though Abraham is old and Sarah is barren, in other words, it's going to take a miracle. Then in Genesis chapter 17, look at verses 15 to 19. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now you remember that Abraham had a son named Ishmael through Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. But Ishmael is not the promised seed. God has not made promises to Ishmael. God has made these promises to Abraham and to his seed Isaac and to his seed after him. Now, Abraham's belief in this promise is going to be severely tested. You may remember the story in chapter 22, when having received Isaac finally, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham believed that if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. So he was willing to obey God. And based on his obedience, God's promises were confirmed to him again. In chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The promise that God made to Abraham He'll restate to Isaac and to Jacob. Although each man's story is different, the covenant promise of a seed continues through their line. Then, in Genesis chapter 25, beginning of verse 19, we read, these are the generations of Isaac. So Moses is, is hitting the switch and propelling things forward now with the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Araman of Petam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the promise made to Abraham and confirmed to Isaac will also be confirmed to Jacob, but not to Esau. The older brother and his nation, Edom, will serve the younger brother and his nation, Israel. And then through a series of strange events, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him his blessing. Listen to the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 29. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Doesn't that sound like God's promise to Abraham? It is, and it's confirmed now to Jacob. In the very next chapter, Esau wants to kill Jacob for his trickery, so Jacob runs away. And while Jacob is away in servitude to his uncle Laban, the Lord begins to fulfill his promise to make Jacob a great nation. Jacob gets a wife. Actually, he gets two wives. And he has 12 sons. And his sons have sons. And he begins to prosper. And this is the beginning of the nation that was promised. In Genesis chapter 25 and verse 9, we read, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. And a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. You see, the promise really is taking shape here now really taking shape, and it's, it's really happening. And, and Jacob gets a name, Israel. And he's getting a nation of prosperous offspring. In chapter 36, the descendants of Esau are then accounted for, but they're not the promised line. That's one of those spin the plate, move forward quickly. And then in chapter 37, verse 1, it begins saying, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. This is the tenth toldot. And clearly, Joseph is the star of the show till the end of Genesis. The account continues. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. 
And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow, uh, bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. And of course, we know that everything in those dreams did come to pass. Joseph's brothers hated him, and they sold him into slavery. But Joseph rises out of slavery and becomes the most powerful man in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, which makes him practically the most powerful man in the world. And his brothers do, in fact, come and bow down to him. And by the end of the book, God's promise is still in effect. It's still moving forward. We see it in Jacob's great name. We see it in a growing nation that is in place, having been saved from famine by Joseph. We see it in Joseph, in that he is essentially the king of the world and all the nations are blessed through him. And who does that make you think of? Who is the promise still pointing forward to? Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is Paul interpreting the patriarchs for us. Listen carefully. The promises made to Abraham and his descendants were ultimately made to Jesus Christ. Repetition is supposed to help. Listen carefully. The promises made to Abraham and his descendants were ultimately promises made to Jesus Christ. The promises were made not to many seeds, but to one seed. And that one seed is Jesus Christ. All the promises made to the patriarchs and Israel were types and shadows, examples, foreshadowings of what was really and truly, clearly and fully promised by God to Jesus Christ. Who has been given the greatest name of all? Look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humble and obedient second Adam who died on the cross to restore sinners and to restore creation received the greatest name. Or, or remember back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. 
Paul writes, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places for far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The exalted one, the victorious one, the one who reigns forever is Jesus. Or consider Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow, lots of Jesus and creation stuff going on there. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God's promise to give Abraham a great name was God's promise given to Jesus that he would have the greatest name. And don't forget this, God gives Christ the great name based on his obedience. Look again at Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. This is, what, this is what God spoke to Abraham. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then God called him Abraham. Then God gave him the name. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was the one who walked before God in perfect holiness, representing God to the world. Jesus was the blameless sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice, who trusted his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God has kept his promise to bless Jesus. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 19. Beginning in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened up, John writes, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. There's a couple of names. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by, uh, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on the white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Who has received the greatest name? And who has received the greatest nation? While you're still in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because of his obedience, 
Jesus has been given a great name and a great nation. Like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, this truth is yet unfolding in history. It's redemptive history and it's yet unfolding. Jesus will one day rule over the great land. The new creation that Adam pointed to, that Noah pointed to, that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's a lot, and it's a lot fast. But I'm wondering. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I'm wondering if one of the reasons, maybe one of the reasons that you are an unbeliever is because the Bible just hasn't quite made sense to you yet. Like me watching only one part of the Lord of the Rings. You've heard about Jesus, that he died on the cross to atone for sin and rose from the dead to grant eternal life, and you've been told to believe in him, but your understanding of Jesus has just kind of been disconnected, just kind of floating there not moored to the beginning and to the end. From the beginning of Genesis to the final scene in Revelation, everything is for and about Jesus Christ. And all the promises of God to Jesus are for everyone who believes in Jesus. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to this promise. God has used all of creation and all of history to point you to Jesus Christ this morning. All of it. Jesus is the promise of God for your salvation and for your life and for your happiness. Is it starting to make a little sense in your head? It already makes sense in your heart. You know that you've rejected God's rightful place over your life, and you know that it takes perfect obedience to escape his punishment, and that you don't stand a chance at that. Neither did Adam, neither did Noah, neither did Abraham. But the God you fear is the same God that is offering you mercy and forgiveness of your sins if you'd turn to Christ this morning. Same God is making this offer to you. And if you would repent of your sins, and if you would turn to Christ, and if you would repent of your sins and bow down before Christ as king, you will find yourself not condemned, but an heir, according to the promise by faith in Christ. He is our beginning and our end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
this bedrock to stand on. We thank you for this good word that connects us to you and to Christ, that fuels our obedience to the things that are true and good and lasting. Father, we pray that you would use this word to save sinners even now and to encourage and build up your church even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.